Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. I am super excited to introduce today's guest, but before I get to that, I will say that this show is brought to you, in a sense, by my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycalmers.substack.com, and that's where I'm putting out a lot of my long-form writing content recently. It's pretty various at the moment, uh, and I'm working on homing it down, but the, one of the big pieces I put, put out there recently was on uh, the question of, does travel reduce prejudice? And uh, this is something I'm really interested in, how travel and, and experiencing other cultures and, and all sort of stuff changes our minds, the way we think, the way we interact with the world. And, I, and uh, I think a lot of us intuitively might think the answer to that question is yes, travel does, in a sense, bring us closer together with other different kinds of people and the way they do things and therefore reduce prejudice. The answer should have to be rather complicated. So at any rate, if you're interested in that sort of stuff and want to check out some of my writing, the best place to do so is at codycommerce.substack.com. To today's guest, I am super excited to introduce Rebecca Sachs. Uh, she's one of my favorite cognitive neuroscientists out there, much beloved by many people. Her official title is uh, an associate investigator at the McGovern Institute and the John W. Jarve 1978 professor in brain and cognitive sciences. That's at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. That is also where she did her PhD in 2003. And before that, she was an undergrad at Oxford. We talk about both those. Um, they're institutions that I've spent some time at. Oxford is where I'm at right now, and my partner was at MIT before. So uh, then that, that's you know where I got close and interested in, with Rebecca's work. So it was really fun to hear about her experience through all of that. Um, uh, one of the big things we talk about is sort of the, the lead up to one of the papers that put her on the map. Circa 2003, her people thinking about thinking people, the role of temporal parietal junction in, quote, theory of mind. Um, it's uh, one of the central papers of sort of social cognitive neuroscience, if you want to call it, and uh, just an incredible contribution to the field. We talk a lot about... Uh, that and the ideas and, and experiments and, and experiences that led up to that. We talk about her um, er, formative sort of collaboration uh, with Nancy Canwisher, who was her mentor and a person I had on the show uh, a few weeks back. And overall, it was just a joy and an inspiration to talk to Rebecca. She's such a cool scientist, the kind of one that makes you excited about what's going on and uh, uh, reminds you why you got into what you're doing in the first place um so at any rate that is more than enough of me and without any further ado here is rebecca sachs so uh rebecca the the first thing i, I like to ask people is uh, where did you grow up i grew up in toronto toronto ontario canada yeah how uh, was that like urban Toronto is suburban what did that what did that sort of look like um yeah so where my parents lived they moved to a house when I was three that my mother still lives in now and it's pretty close to downtown so yeah basically urban Toronto the University of Toronto is easy biking distance long walking distance to get to um and my my parents my grandparents and my great-grandparents all lived in Toronto really wow mm-hmm um, yeah. So what was your, what was your family like? What did your parents do? What, what's, what was, what were things like there? 
my parents were both lawyers, oh, wow. um, which led me to feel like if everything else didn't work out in the worst case scenario, one could always be a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know if that's um, a good uh, thing to have <laughs> yeah. in the back of your mind or if they've, I don't know. Totally not. Yeah. So, but they were very different kinds of lawyers. My mother was an environmental lawyer and is now more and more a climate activist and is now actually running for the Green Party for election. Um, my father was a labor lawyer um, and he and his most of his professional career did negotiations labor negotiations oh wow that's uh that's also uh to some extent what my dad does he oh uh, yeah it comes at it more from the labor side than the than the, the law side but he's had to do a lot of law work as a part of you know those negotiations and and all that sort of stuff collective bargaining all that um, yeah these days as i realize that the job of a professor involves a lot of you know, keeping people feeling happy and safe and setting their employment conditions and making sure that agreements are explicit. Like the more I realize, wow, I, you know, there's a lot of labor relations in academia that I hadn't seen coming. It's incredibly important. I think one is always surprised to find out what their parents do is actually <laughs> super relevant, useful in the wider world. Yeah, uh, that, that's kind of uh, yeah. a loss of innocence at some point. But, uh, but no, anyway, yeah. so what, one thing that I'd be sort of curious to know is what were your interests? What were you drawn to uh, sort of early on in life? Yeah. Well, so my mom actually had always wanted to be a scientist and didn't get to be a scientist for a few reasons. One, because uh, she wasn't very practical in the lab, but but also I think because of extensive misogyny in the time when she was, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s it would just, well, 70s really, it wasn't perceived as possible really for her to have a career in science. Um, so she was excited for me to have a career in science, but actually, uh, and I, I did, I had cousins who were scientists and that seemed kind of amazing. I remember when I was little learning from them, the idea that all objects are made of molecules and just thinking that that was completely amazing. You could look at a physical object and think, wow, there's these little tiny invisible pieces inside them. And if you understood them, you could really understand the world. And my cousins are biochemists. And the idea that the body, the biological body is likewise made up of these tiny pieces, which you could understand at their molecular level, all of that seemed very magical to me. Um, but when I was little, I thought I didn't want to be a scientist because I didn't want to give up on humanities. You know, I wanted to read literature and history and engage in imaginary worlds and real ones. Um, but, but actually, so before I thought I wanted to be a scientist, I thought I wanted to be a professor. I was actually just remembering this last night that when I was 12, I happened to visit um, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and decided that my life stream was to be a professor at Dalhousie, that, that that would be the most amazing thing. It's still possible, Rebecca. You can still make, you can still make <laughs> well, the dream maybe. happen. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I had this idea that professors just spent their whole time in the life of the mind, You know, that it was all pursuing ideas and having incredibly intellectual conversations with your students and reading and writing and thinking and that just seemed like an amazing life little did you know it was all answering email and filling out grant <laughs> applications yeah well email hadn't been invented <laughs> um yeah you know something I, I kind of suspect that there's a part of you uh that is still just as entranced by the observation that all objects are made out of molecules and all that sort of stuff and uh, part of the reason why you're such an inspiring 
scientist is that you're able to maintain the joy of pursuit of knowledge uh, that, uh, you know, smaller you uh, sort of envisioned in that uh, whatever it was up in Nova Scotia that sort of sparked that, that intrigue. But um, <laughs> it's sweet of you to say. But, um, okay, so as, so you started off in, in Toronto and then you, you did your undergrad at Oxford in philosophy and psychology. Uh, how did, how did you end up over here in England? Uh, well, so I, I loved novels and I had read lots of novels that involved people going to Oxford. Um, but I honestly sort of thought Oxford was fictional. Like it didn't really occur to me that it was an actual place in the actual world. Um, and then when I was 17, my dad offered to take me on a trip, just the two of us. And it was a really big deal. I was I think the only time we did it, we went on a trip for a week, the two of us, and he loved London. So we went to London. That was where we spent our week together. But he said I could pick one thing to do outside of London on our trip. And that was when I found out that Oxford was still a place and you could go there. <laughs> so I said I wanted to go to Oxford for the day. So we went for the day. And I guess it must have been late summer because there were people in Subfest. So it must have been exams. And this confirmed my impression that it was fictional. You know, all these people walking around in their gowns and with their carnations. And, um, but it just, it seemed amazing. It seemed like something out of a fictional world. And actually somewhere there's a copy of the letter that I wrote back to my mother from that trip saying, I'm going to go to Oxford. And that was not a real plan. <laughs> that was like a complete pipe dream fantasy. Uh, that that didn't even seem like the kind of thing you could act on, it, you know, like I'm going to go to Oxford and also the moon, like just, you know, this wild and crazy idea. But my mother, and this is to her credit, suddenly perceived that it might actually be great for me to go to Oxford. And she really didn't want me to go to Oxford because it was so far away. It was very important to her that I not leave Ontario. And so she decided to learn everything she could about Oxford in order to convince really herself that it was not in any way better than the University of Ontario, which is where I was planning to go, the University of Toronto in, in Toronto. And um, yeah, so she got all kinds of information about the, what you could study at Oxford and what it was like to be a student at Oxford. And the more she found, of course, the more I wanted to go. Um, it was finding out about the course PPP, which let you be both a scientist and a humanist, right? To study both philosophy um, and experimental psychology and physiology which seemed like such a dream combination to be able to do both of those seriously. And the more I learned about the tutorial system and the independence of the work and the college system, it just seemed more and more appealing. And actually the final straw was um, later that summer, my mom invited over a friend of hers who was a dean at the University of Toronto and said, come on now really, Rebecca would get just as good an education at the University of Toronto, right? And my mom's friend said, if she can go to Oxford, she should go to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I applied and everything about it was dreamlike. The applications were due six months earlier than the Canadian universities. So it was actually the only university I ever applied to. And then I was invited for interview. I couldn't go on the regular interview day. So I flew over on a just a random day. So it was just me interviewing. And you only interview at one college. So I just met these three professors at this one college. And they each asked me really interesting questions that don't have answers. And I was like, if this is Oxford, I am in. Like, this is amazing. I remember some of them. I remember that one of the professors asked me, 
what was the difference between envy and jealousy? And another one asked about the moral acceptability of sacrificing your family for your for the professional good you'll do in the world. Um, anyway, it was just it was this one strange day in another universe when I went into these you know stone rooms with these old guys and got asked these wild questions and um, yeah, it was amazing. I also remember that they had not seen these particular tutors who were interviewing me had not seen a Canadian high school transcript so I remember them asking me are your grades any good (laughs) I was like well that's a moral dilemma Uh, yeah and it was all that was all very strange and then I got in just a few weeks later and that was it that was my whole college application process um because I never even got around to applying for Canadian universities oh wow because then I then uh, I went to Oxford all by myself I moved to England not knowing anybody not with any connection I had chosen Oriel College because you have to choose one of 44 colleges. And I knew nothing. I knew nobody who'd ever been to Oxford. I didn't know anything about any of the colleges. I had no idea how you were supposed to choose. And so I was like, well, look, I need a decision criterion. And um, I'm Jewish. So I... I struck all the ones with saint in the name, which is like half. Right, <laughs> that, that, that's a pretty solid criteria. Yeah. Like Jesus College, Christ Church College. I just like, okay, yeah. now we're down to like 15. <laughs> we can get yeah. started. And then I read the various perspectives and there was like so little information. It was advertising. You can't tell anything about a college. Um, but it turns out that Oriel, which I totally did not know, was viewed as a very conservative college. It had been the last all-male college and it was trying to overcome it. Was like its 30 reputation. minutes ago that they started admitting women at this point. Exactly. Yeah. At the, but when I got there, it had just happened. Yeah. Um, like just a few years earlier, less than a decade. And so it had this reputation as sporty and male dominated. And it was trying to overcome that. So its advertising materials were all about being like, you know, cosmopolitan and diverse right because it was trying to overcome this reputation i didn't know any of that just how i ended up at this at the rowing college so i rowed my whole first year it was kind of amazing it was the last college that did um that did high table every night with latin grace so in some sense it was the most amazing college to get to go to um, because it was because it was so different from anything i could have had anywhere else um but yeah it was it was a very strange match for a vegetarian Canadian Jewish girl. And in sometimes this... their advertising scheme worked because they got their totally self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Well, and the punchline is, it turns out Oriel is the new name of that college. Do you know its old name? No. It was called House of Mary, the Mother Virgin. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Can't escape it. Can't escape it. <laughs> no, this is this is just barely apropos enough of the conversation to mention. But actually, today I published a summary of what do you need to know as an American applying to UK PhDs, because all of the crucial stuff, all of the mechanism behind it. If you don't know someone, uh, like it's not like the websites. Even in 2021, they don't tell you any like relevant information. Actually, what happened to me was I applied to uh, Cambridge first because of the scholarship. It was like months before the Oxford one. And when I, I submitted approximately an American application to it, and uh, the person I applied to work with, Sander Vanderlin, and God bless him, sent me back this really nice, direct, but gentle email <laughs> saying like, look, man, you didn't really even approximate a full uh, application. <laughs> Do you want to give it another shot? Um, so I didn't get in there, but it was because I had that first you know, swing and miss that I was able to do it. So anyway, 
uh, that still exists for American North American students uh, looking to study at, at Oxford. Uh, even the websites today, they give you very little to go on. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, but anyway, so you did you uh, so that was your conception of it going in, and you did have uh, lots of you know it sounds like experiences there. Did you did you like it? Did you find the sort of kind of intellectual fulfillment traction that sort of stuff? Uh, how did that begin to to come together for you? You know what? I loved it. I totally loved it. There's some sense in which my whole life has had an ideal of what university life would be like. And I idealized it before I got there. I idealized it while I was there and I still idealize it. It was, it was an incredible experience for me. I managed to get, I think really the best of the Oxford educational experience, which is based on, or used to be based on um, small tutorials, right? So in, in the way I managed to get it, not everybody gets this or even got it when I was there, which is a long time ago now, but I managed to get mostly one-on-one tutorials. So most of my education at Oxford, I would get assigned a topic, be given a week to write an essay about it. And then I would come back at the end of the week and talk about my essay for an hour one-on-one with a professor. And there were no grades, right? none of it was, the grades were all 100% the exams at the end. Um, So the work, the actual work of the essays and the conversations were for their own sake. And there was no set curriculum. I could, if there was a topic that was more interesting to me and the professor, we could change our minds about what I was going to write about next. And there was so much freedom to take the question anywhere I wanted, right? I would have a question and a suggested reading list and the whole library. This was back when I read papers on paper, right? So it was the whole library. I had all week in the whole library. And I wrote so much. I worked out that at the end of three years, I had written 300,000 words of essays um, because it was all, it was, you know, one or two essays every week. And yeah, the combination of autonomy and learning for intrinsic pleasure um, and not feeling like any of the work I was doing was pointless hoops. I had You didn't really ask me about this, but I'd had a bad time in high school at the end because I was bored out of my mind and not polite about it. And I actually nearly got thrown out of high school. I got thrown out of almost all my classes in high school um, for uh, disrespectful behavior. Um, And this was because I was was just bored out of my mind by high school. Um, And I you know, I had a phase where I decided that high school was so pointless, I should stay up at night and read and sleep in the classroom. And so I would like show up to, this is so rude. I would show up to professors, teachers' classrooms and put my head down on my desk and go to sleep because I hadn't slept all night. And it was just like very bad behavior. And um, yeah, so the freedom to go where I wanted intellectually and to pursue my interests and to work all week long and then have an hour to talk about it was just such an incredible relief and release the sense also that what you were going for was not a right answer that was the other thing I loved about Oxford this is so profoundly how I feel about the pursuit of knowledge is that um you know this reminds me you 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 warned me you were going to ask me about some of my favorite books and I was thinking about them and one of them is Stoppard's play Arcadia which is this incredible meditation on knowledge and truth and one of the characters says in it if the answer's at the back of the book, I can wait. And that's kind of how I feel too, right? Like if this is just a matter of getting the answer, then it doesn't matter if it's me or a robot or a hundred years ago or a hundred years in the future. It's the pursuit of knowledge 
that's worth living for, right? That And I felt like Oxford was the first place where the whole educational system was about that. It wasn't about showing you could jump through hoops and get the correct answer and plug new numbers into the same equation. It was finally a chance where I think appropriately every question had no answer. And it was just a matter of, could you think better and write better and argue better and get better evidence and design better experiments and analyze your statistics better to get closer, you know? Anyway, I loved Oxford is the short answer. That's so lovely. Um, so one one kind of thing that I'm interested to draw out is you said there was also a part of you that was really drawn to literature and, you know, sort of the humanities side of thing. And uh, between you and me, there was, uh, I did go back through your your archives of your, your greatest oh, no. hits. And you have this paper from 2006 with Laura Schultz um, reviewing um, why we read fiction. Yeah, exactly. And it was, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, sort of like intersection of, of theory of mind and and the novel and, and that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I found it fun to, to read your, your thoughts on that. But so the, the, the point of that is not uh, what that summary was. But can you draw out maybe what you were getting from literature while you while you were simultaneously like you know sort of building up uh your your psychological expertise and interest that sort of stuff well i mean literature is mostly just a tremendous source of pleasure for me i'm almost always reading some piece of fiction um there are moments where they where the avocational pleasure in fiction and uh, a professional interest in theory of mind connect. And actually the book that um, comes to mind for me about, you know, about that connection, even more than Lisa Zenshine's book um, is a book by Dorit Cohen about the technique by which fiction writers depict minds. And actually she has, um, so Dorit Cohen is a, a literary theorist, not a cognitive scientist at all. Um, but in, so she's written these two books and one of them is called Dis The Distinction of Fiction. She's argued that what fiction is, is a text that claims to have access to somebody's mental states. And this idea that other people's minds are by definition unknowable and inaccessible, what it means to be fiction is to claim to have access to a mind you couldn't possibly have access to. The technique of fiction is to make that seem real, right? To write in such a way that the other mind feels known and connected. I think that's incredibly interesting. And it relates to an abiding interest that I have in how we understand one another. Um, so which, which is related to the way that I have done my science. So the, the idea in its most succinct form is that we understand one another's minds through words. And that, that might seem really uncontroversial, but actually, for my whole career, the dominant view in social cognitive neuroscience has been we understand one another visually. We see each other's facial expressions. We see each other's gaze movements. We see each other's nonverbal social cues, like the very helpful nod you just gave me so that I could keep speaking fluently. Right? There's a lot to dynamic, in-person, face-to-face conversation um, that is profoundly important. Like, Don't get me wrong. Face-to-face -face conversation is incredibly important. Um, but it led to an emphasis on uh, visual cues, 
innately known cues like eye gaze and facial expression cues that could be evolutionarily selected and knowledge that's based on similarity, right? So similarity in the sense of body posture similarity, of, of bodily form similarity, of place similarity. And I think that's all very interesting, like the whole mirror neuron work. There's been a ton of work focusing on knowing other people through being similar to them physically and seeing them, connecting with them visually. And I've always been interested in the opposite, in how far you can go. What's the most distant, unfamiliar mind you can understand and deeply understand, not understand merely in a shallow sense, but get into the actual structure of the desires, the beliefs, the expectations, the shame, the guilt, the aspiration, right? How deep can you go? And it seems to me that it's writers of fiction who show us the answer to that question. You can go incredibly far. And a novel is the most powerful way to show you inside a mind that I could possibly imagine. Film is pretty good too, but I think also tends to use a lot of words to do it. You know, a word is so much more efficient than a picture in getting you inside the mental state of a character. So anyway, that connects to the way that I did my first work in theory of mind, because right when I started as a graduate student, when I started working on theory of mind, I started with verbal stimuli, with short narratives. And other people, you know, social cognitive science was a brand new field when I got into it. I was so lucky, right? The, there were about five papers in social cognitive neuroscience total when I started, right? I, I mean, there's probably 500,000 now, right? Um, but right at the beginning, it wasn't clear if social cognitive neuroscience was going to be an extension of vision science and mostly about seeing bodily movements and goal-directed actions and facial expressions. And actually I went to a vision science lab, right? I went to Nancy Kenrish's lab and I thought I was going to work on Hyder and Simmel style animated, you know, shapes that move around and convey their goals. Um, and I did that actually, I tried to do that. Um, but at the same time, I started with verbal narratives and found as a matter of empirical fact that verbal narratives, even ones written by me, which are terrible fiction. <laughs> you, the 40 word narrative plots by me are nothing compared to the kind of fiction Dora Cohen is analyzing. And yet they are incredibly powerful stimuli. They evoke massive amounts of activity in these brain regions that we came to call the theory of mind network. So much that the activity is reliable on the size and scale of how visual cortex responds to light. You know. And that blew Nancy's mind when she was my PhD advisor that this signal should be so big, so strong, so reliable. You can get it in every person. Um, yeah, and so I guess I would say you asked, how is my level of fiction related to the work I did? I guess there's some way in which the strategy I took successfully as a grad student comes directly from the fact that I love fiction so much. It's so fascinating to hear you describe all that. There's there's so much I love there. It's it it. And part of it echoes something that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is that in cognitive science, there's this sort of trope, uh, which is to, to quote Richard Feynman and say, well, if you really understand something, then you ought to be able to build it. And people use that as a sort of um, argument for why AI needs to be the, the cornerstone of our understanding of, of intelligence and human cognition. And I see that um, quote, and I think... 
it's not computers uh, and, 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 you know, computational models that, but it's actually writers of fiction and stories. Like that is, in a sense, a real building of a, a, a human. Obviously, it's, it's fictional, but exactly what you're what you're saying is that that's actually an argument for for uh, fiction writing and that sort of stuff. That is creation of truly like, you know, what the human experience is uh, as interesting as and, and, and important as these, you know, sort of uh uh, reduced uh, forms of them come come out in, in computational models, but I love that that deep appreciation for the broad, truly human you know picture of, of what cognition is and what our minds are doing was something that has always been in the <laughs> core of your thing. It's that's really cool. Um, so MIT, you went straight from Oxford to MIT. What did that transition to look like? What did that transition look like? Well. So Oxford was three years. Um, and so in my third year, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Actually, at the beginning of my third year, I thought I wanted to go on in philosophy. I loved the project I was working on in philosophy as an undergrad, um, which was about uh, is self-deception possible? And if so, what is it? Um, I yeah. just thought that was incredible, which also turns out to be deeply related to theory of mind. But so I was having so much fun working on that project and I applied for grad school in philosophy. Um, but then actually that project came down to an empirical question. So I asserted that a certain kind of self-deception was impossible. And my tutor at the time said she thought it was possible. And then it seemed like philosophy had run out of resources. <laughs> like, <laughs> what could you do philosophically? I thought it was impossible. She thought it was possible. It no longer seemed like a philosophical question to resolve that. Like one of us was right and one of us was wrong. And I was like, huh, I guess I need to do something that involves science and data. Like you can't answer even these deepest questions purely by thinking about them. So I also applied to grad school in cognitive neuroscience and as I say, there wasn't, there was basically no social cognitive neuroscience at the time. It was just, just getting started. Um, so I read some papers of different people and the paper I read of Nancy's was actually about consciousness. She had just published papers using incredibly beautiful methods to separate the input to your eyeballs from the conscious experience of the, the visual image. One of them was by using, um, what's that called? Suppression, where you present two competing images to the two eyes. Well, that's come on the tip of my tongue. Binocular rivalry. She had used binocular rivalry to present one stimulus that never changed, but the person's conscious experience goes back and forth between the two images. And so she'd been able to trace through the brain, where's the neural activity dependent on the stimulus? And when does it switch to reflecting the conscious state? I just thought that was so incredibly elegant. And so that's why I applied to work with her. But I applied to a bunch of places all over, um, you know, all over the US and I think Canada as well. And um, what I remember, I was working in the lab. I, was, I worked in, a, in Kia Nobre's EEG lab my whole undergraduate years. And I remember being in the EEG lab and Kia coming in, there were no cell phones. This is, I'm very prehistoric. We had a landline and not in the lab room because it could disrupt the experiments. I remember Kia came in from the office and she said, Nancy Kenwisher is on the phone for you. And I still remember my stomach turning over like, oh my God, Nancy Kenwisher is on the phone for me? Like, that's just completely mind blowing. 
And so I went to talk to her and Nancy was like, I really want to convince you that MIT is the right place for you. And I was like, you know, sold. Like, <laughs> like, that's not going to be a hard argument. I couldn't believe she was trying to recruit me. Like that just seemed upside down and backwards. Anyway, so that was my first contact with Nancy. And I interviewed in a bunch of places, but I remember feeling about Nancy at the time, and this is still true till you know, whatever, 20 some years later, that Nancy's love of science is so intense and infectious. And mine goes up and down. Some days I love science and I know why I do it. But some days I don't. I lose track of why I'm doing what I'm doing and what's to love about it. I can be very nihilist sometimes. And from one day of talking with Nancy, I thought she would be the antidote to my nihilism. That on days when I couldn't remember why I did the work I do, Nancy would be the one who could remind me. And now that has been right my whole life since. So thank goodness I chose to go to Nancy's lab. Um, the other thing about Nancy is she's incredibly rigorous. She's not interested in a flashy finding. She's interested in a true one and super self-critical. It was such good training to be taught. Check and check again and doubt yourself and doubt your favorite ideas more than you doubt your less favorite ideas. And anyway, so yeah, so she recruited me to MIT to my astonishment and I got into a few other places, but I felt in the end of the process that I was most proud of myself for getting into MIT. I didn't, it just seemed kind of amazing that I could do that. So I went to MIT to work with Nancy. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was such a lucky time to start in cognitive neuroscience because cognitive neuroscience was just beginning, right? Like when I was an undergraduate, undergraduates weren't allowed anywhere near MRI machines. They were way too rare and precious. The only time I ever saw one was by volunteering as a participant. And just when I became a grad student, there came to be enough MRI machines that random grad students like me were allowed to use them for their own science, you know? And I still, when I was a grad student, we scanned in the middle of the night at the Charlestown Navy Yard. So there were a whole bunch of very sketchy experiences of like getting there and back in the middle of the night and on various occasions, like having my car towed and being stuck in the dark under the bridge at two in the morning. So it was still, it still felt rare and out there to be able to do MRI, fMRI research, but it had become possible like seemingly minutes before I got there. So that made it, you know, quite easy to do things no one had ever done because no one had ever done anything. (laughs) And so, you know, you just start somewhere. Like we started with theory of mind and we tried a bunch of other things that didn't work. Um, and th- there was just so much space for that. Like I tried many experiments that totally failed, including many attempts at that Hyder and Simmel experiment I told you about. And it doesn't matter that they failed because, you know, it was, there was just so, there were so many things we didn't know that if one thing didn't work out, there was time to do another, you know, that it was an incredible luxury to be at the beginning of a field. Um, yeah, so so that was the beginning of my time at MIT. Yeah, so you're, I guess, uh, correct me if this is a not not accurate characterization, but your your first major paper was your 2003 neuroimage paper with with Nancy, uh, where you know you do sort of this core theory of mind fMRI, uh, you know, stuff. People thinking about people, the role of temporal parietal junction in theory of mind. So can you maybe, so that was, uh, I believe, your last year of graduate school that came out. 
which by the way, it looks like you uh, spent three years, uh, finished your PhD in three years, which is uh, crackers, absolutely crackers. Um, and uh, so can you draw a line between starting off and be like, okay, we could do anything uh, and doing a subset of anything, uh, some of which worked and some of which didn't, and having something that came to be this flagship uh, paper in not only your work, of course, but the field, more generally. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be quite that flowery, but thank you. That's very nice. That's my job to be um, flowery and yours you, is to you tell me flowery, what actually yeah. happened. Well, I mean, what actually happened. So at the time, as I say, there were about three or four previous, there was a pet, one paper from PET, one with fMRI. Um, these were all coming out of uh, the Frith's uh, UCL. Um, and there was a little bit of evidence from animals that the STS was going to be super relevant to something about social behavior um, from uh, both lesion evidence and a tiny bit of evidence from single unit recording. So there was reason to think something around the posterior STS was going to be relevant for some aspect of social cognition, behavior, something. Um, and the assumption, so the very first studies of theory of mind, there was really one, one pet study, one fMRI study of theory of mind. And what they had found in this very broad contrast, because you know, the first time you try anything, you sort of use it, you know, mallet. So it wasn't a precise experiment. Yeah, it was this massive manipulation. What they had found was that there were two very clear areas of activation, one in medial prefrontal cortex and one in um, the temporal parietal junction near the top end of the STS. And the, the assumption of those authors and our, our assumption was that the prefrontal region must be fairly abstract and cognitive. That was our stereotype of prefrontal cortex, that it did fairly abstract functions. And that the posterior component, the one near the top of the TPJ, would be more related to vision and perceptual processing. And so we thought maybe the TPJ is kind of the apex of perceptual processing of people and agents. Um, and then it converts into a more abstract representation of their minds in the prefrontal region. That was the hypothesis we started with in 2000, so 21 years ago. Um, and so that was that was what we started with. And we the first experiment I tried to do was to say, well, look, if it's kind of the top of a processing hierarchy about people, then if we evoke concepts of people in different ways, they will all converge at that apex. And it came also out of an, a very influential model of face processing that said, you know, Nancy was famous for studies of face processing. And that model said your perceptual representation of faces as a kind of image needed to connect up to this higher level representation of people. And so that's what we thought we were looking for, this higher level, maybe multimodal representation of people uh, that would then connect to the representation of minds, which would be in the prefrontal region. So our first experimental design was we tried to present different stimuli that would evoke representations of people. Some were um, faces with facial expressions of emotion. That was one experiment. Another set was these cartoons that move around in ways that conveyed goals or didn't convey goals. And this third set were the stories that described people with minds versus described physical uh, causal interactions. So we tried all these different things and the goal was to look for the place where they all converged. Right. And actually, I still, this was sort of a trauma memory. My very first year, at the end of the year, we were submitting abstracts to SFN. It was going to be the first conference I went to. 
and I analyzed the data and I thought I had found evidence that they were converging exactly what we expected. And I wrote an abstract and gave it to Nancy saying I was going to submit it to SFN. This was going to be my first conference submission claiming that as we expected, the visual representations, the goal representations, and the theory of mind representations all converged at the top of the STS. And I still remember, I wrote the abstract, I sent it to Nancy, and I presented it to her in a meeting with her. And she was, she was so critical of my argument. She's like, you haven't shown it this way, and you haven't shown it that way, and there's this key mistake. And the key mistake is, if you average together a bunch of brains, the position of the different activations in the different brains gets blurred, right? So if it's like, if you imagine when you, when you average together a bunch of images of faces, you get a blurred average face, right? Because everything that's slightly different gets blurred from the averaging. Same thing happens in the brain. If you average together a bunch of different brains, then at the edges where one person's shape is slightly different than another, they blur together and they look like they're overlapping. And Nancy was looking at my data and she was like, I don't think you've shown yet that they overlap in individuals. You've shown that they overlap in this group average, but nothing you've shown me tells me that they, they overlap in the individuals. Go back and do all your analyses again. I want to know in individual people, are these things overlapping? And I went back and did the analyses the way she asked for, and they weren't. They weren't at all. Not in anybody. And... So I didn't submit that abstract, or at least I hope I didn't. Maybe I retracted it. Now I've suppressed even exactly what happened to that abstract. It was such a lesson in being careful. And later on, I published papers saying, you know what's cool? These things don't overlap. You might have thought they overlapped. I thought they overlapped, but it turns out they don't overlap. And one thing that that tells you is that the part that responds to the verbal stories and is about theory of mind, it's not the apex of a perceptual representation. And then we went further and pursued it. And, and that's where we, that first paper says, you might've thought this was a representation of people, but it isn't. Surprisingly, it's a representation of minds and it's just as abstract as the, the frontal component. Wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I can only imagine too at the time being so excited about uh, that finding and Oh man, but so uh, you did uh, get like, you know, solid, solid stuff. And so I'm wondering what's, uh, after you finished that, your PhD with Nancy and you had, you know, uh, a, a solid paper under your belt, what's, uh, what happened next? Like in, 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 I guess what I'm getting at is that in retrospect, you know, a naive observer like me might say like, okay, here is, uh, you know, the publication of this paper and it's just, you know, sort of like everything, you know, was easy sailing from there. So I'm guess, I, I, I <laughs> what, what, um, what happened after, after that initial, I guess you could call it success. <laughs> well, that's certainly not how it felt. Um, well, insofar as the audience is young researchers who don't know what the space of possibilities is, it seems worth it to speak as frankly as possible. Um, so what happened was partway through my second year in grad school, I had a massive interpersonal conflict with another person in the lab. And because of that, actually, um, Nancy asked me to leave the lab for a while because it was too conflictual to have both of us in the lab at the same time. And so I was casting about for where I could work for a while in the meantime, while I had to be away from Nancy's lab. And I had met Susan Carey 
at a graduate seminar that she co-taught at MIT uh, that fall. And so I approached her and said, would it be okay for me to do a study in your lab? Because <laughs> I need somewhere to go and work. Um, and so I started talking with Susan Carey about experiments in infants. Um, I had never thought I wanted to do uh, experiments in infants. But Susan, who is you know, an incredible mind, has, if you listen to Susan talk about empirical research on the mind, she will very quickly convince you that the most profound philosophically deep questions about the mind are about the origins of the mind, right? What is its initial state and how does it develop into what it is? And she, and that the way to approach that is to take very seriously questions about infant cognition, right? Like what are the initial states of representations in an infant mind and how do they transform into the adult mind? And she, in this seminar, had actually, you know, I think it was Nancy and Liz Spelke had co-taught the seminar and Susan was just there asking questions, but she was asking amazing questions. And so, I, you know, I had this slightly awkward time when I needed something to do. And I started talking to Susan about, could you use infant cognition experiments to study the origin of representations of agents? What's the initial representations that babies have? Um, and how are they transformed into the adult-like ones? And um, again, there had been one recent really influential paper um, by Yuri Gergay and Gergay Shibra um, showing some, some of the intrinsic logic of infants' representations of agents as goal-directed actors. And we had read that class, that paper in the class. And I came to Susan with some suggestions of experiments you could do to, to test some of their principles. Actually, the first idea I wanted to test this is a long time ago now, so I'm just remembering all this. There was a super cool idea at the time, which was that babies were born dualist. They were born with an intuitive idea of physics, the physical objects in the world, and an intuitive idea about agents' minds, like a, the kind of creature that had a goal, but that it took them a long time to learn how minds and bodies go together. And so the hypothesis was, Maybe initially, before they've learned how minds and bodies go together, their concept of agents is kind of like our concept of ghosts. Like they have thoughts, feelings, intentions, desires, but they're not constrained by the physical world. They can go through walls and appear and disappear. And that what you'd have to learn is that the constraints of the physical world, that like balls and tables can't go through walls and can't appear and disappear and can only be in one place at a time, you might have to learn that that also applies to agents. That was a super cool, very deep theoretical idea. And it could only be tested directly or it could be most directly tested by asking, is there ever a stage of infant development when infants have that representation? They can see an agent is goal-directed, and they can see an object is constrained by the physical world, but they don't yet know that the two things apply simultaneously, that the goal-directed agent is constrained by the physical world. I thought that was an amazing suggestion, like a deep philosophical idea test that I thought was testable with experiments. And so I proposed that to Susan. If you'll let me come in your lab for a little while, I will do these experiments and test this principle of uh, intuitive dualism. So we tested it by showing babies these um, agent goal-directed actions that, that we knew and other people had shown babies would see as goal-directed, um, and then asking, okay, here's this hand that you think is a goal-directed agent. Would you be surprised if it went right through a wall? 
And quite disappointingly, the answer is yes, babies are surprised if hands go through walls. And we could never find any evidence that there was a stage at which they understood humans as agents, but didn't know that they were constrained by physics. So that was rather a damp squid of a paper, but it meant that I got to know Susan and I got to work in her lab. And then, you know, I, I was again, incredibly lucky that having done those two projects, one project with Nancy, the publication in 2003 is misleading. We did the work in 2000, 2001, just takes a long time. Um, and the paper with Susan wasn't published until 2005, but that was done in 2001, 2002, pretty much. And um, after that, I said, okay, look, I have these two methods and they're both asking similar questions. What are the basic representations of agents? Where do they come from? What are their component parts? Um, and so I proposed to Nancy and Susan that maybe these two different tools, infant cognitive experiments and fMRI experiments in adults, maybe we could use them to converge on an answer about the nature of social representations in the mind. Like, are the things that develop earlier the ones that have modular regions, for example, was like a direct question. Um, and so Nancy gave me an opportunity to write a review paper, and that was the review paper that I wrote with Nancy and Susan. Um, so the, in the end, my PhD was a little bit the work I had done with Susan and a little bit the work I had done with Nancy and also this paper that I'd written in between. And then a postdoc at Harvard op had an opening that I could apply for. And um, yeah, and when I got it, then it seemed like, well, I'd already written three papers and I had a postdoc waiting. So I might as well graduate and go on. But none of it was linear. Like I kept for the next three years while I was a postdoc at Harvard, I kept working with Susan, but I also kept doing neuroimaging experiments in Nancy's lab um, during that time as well. So I didn't kind of finish one thing and then do another. I sort of did both all along. And actually, I think it was kind of great to be doing both kinds of work because they have very different um, frustrations. And this is something I often counsel younger scientists who are going to do two things is science is always frustrating and it's worth being frustrated in different ways <laughs> rather than always in the same way. So with fMRI, data collection is fast and data analysis is slow and annoying. And with infant cognitive experiments, data collection is slow and annoying, but data analysis is fast. And so that was actually really great as a complementary pair of methods to use. And in the end, I used both of them for most of my PhD and most of my postdoc. And still now, I still do both. What an incredible, unexpected blessing to, uh, <laughs> you know, have to uh, go somewhere else and really be able to do that with uh, uh, Susan Carey. And it turns out, you know, like you're... Little suspicion that, hmm, fMRI, like, you know, early childhood stuff. What happens when you, it turns out that uh, that little inkling that you had was a, was a worthwhile one, huh? It's worked out for me so far, yeah. That's really cool. Well, we're coming up in the end here, and I want to be respectful of your, your time. So uh, maybe I'll ask, uh, you alluded to this earlier, but uh, what, are, what are three books that have really impacted you? Yeah, I was thinking, you told me you were going to ask me for three books. And I was like, three? <laughs> How do people keep it down to three? Yeah, it's so hard. Because um, I'm, I'm always reading books. But anyway, so I was thinking about it. I decided to pick three nonfiction books because um, I love fiction too. But uh, these three nonfiction books are three I've been thinking about recently. Um, okay, so here's the three books that have influenced me in the last few years. Um, the first one is Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. Um, there's lots to love in that book, 
But one of the things I particularly love about it is that um, the way she shows that the pursuit of a scientific understanding of the world is a personal and moral story. It's not, it's not like you go try to understand ichthyology and then you come home and you're a passionate human being full of morals and dilemmas and lives. Actually, trying to understand ichthyology, how we should understand this, this set of species of fish, is part of trying to understand what it is to be a human being and how to live. I think it's unusual for people to give such a vivid entry into the personal passionate pursuit of knowledge in science as Lulu Miller does in that book. So that's the first one. The second one is a little bit older. It's called In the Land of Invented Languages by Arika Okrent. And it's about why people invent languages. <laughs> so, which it turns out for as long as we have historical records, people seem to have been inventing languages. And there are many reasons why people invent languages. And some of it is frustration with the difficulty of communicating the things we want to communicate in the language we have. It's imprecision or it's parochialism. Um, but by the end of the book, she argues that we invent languages for the same reason that we use existing languages. And it's not just for efficient communication. It's also for a sense of belonging that we... In, we use the languages we do to be part of a community. And that insight that she had in that context has just been changing the way I think about so many aspects of human learning and human behavior. That if you think of people as information seeking or maximizing efficiency or driven by curiosity and rationality, that's fine, but you miss how important community and belonging are. And all of the things, both good and terrible, that we do in the service of belonging. So that's the second one. And the third one is a book called Hanging Onto the Edges by Daniel Nettle, which is the first time I read a book and I thought if I could ever write a book, it would be, if, if I could dream of writing a book in a fantasy world in which I could write a book, I would want it to be a book like this. Um, in similar ways to the other two, it, is about all of the different science that he's done and communicates the science as a personal and passionate pursuit. But what I like best about it is it's all about the uncertainty and the provisionality and the sense that this is a work in progress. And that what's fun is seeing the connections and the possibilities rather than kind of marching triumphantly through town with one big idea to cure them all, you know. Um, I love the humility and the curiosity and the openness of spirit in that book. Um, and the, the first chapter, which describes what the book is and what it's for and his experience of his first 20 years as a scientist, is the closest I've ever come to somebody saying how I feel about my professional life. Incredible. Uh, three amazing books. Uh, thank you so much for that recognition. Rebecca, this has been so... Oh man, this has been so cool to hear more about your uh, story and, and all this sort of stuff. I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time and uh, uh, I'm unsurprised to discover that there is a lot of inspiring and, and interesting backstory to <laughs> your experiences. So thank you for sharing, with that, uh, sharing that with me today. My pleasure. That was my conversation with Rebecca Sachs. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you did, I would love it if you subscribed to the podcast. It really means a lot, and wherever you're listening, those numbers really make a difference for bringing new people into the show. 
If you want to connect with my writing, I was talking about my recent long form piece on does travel reduce prejudice? I also have a four part biography of Gordon Alper, which you can also find on the show, uh, the audio version on the episode previous to this one. So if you want to connect with my writing, follow follow that. The best place to do that is codycommerce.substack.com. At any rate, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.